text today is from Luke chapter 17. Verses 15 and 16. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. One of the most conspicuous evidences of faith in the life of a Christian is thankfulness. It is inevitable that one who truly knows his past slavery to sin, the curse of the law that rested upon him, and the eternal wrath of God in hell that awaited him, that he cannot help but give thanks to the one who has graciously set him free. One of the sins that Christians are perhaps more prone to, to fall into than any other is that of thanklessness. For we do not have to speak out bitterly against God or against His providence in order to be thankless. All we need to do is simply to forget, to express our undying love and praise and thankfulness to the Lord our God for all of His tender mercies toward us. You know, we may never forget to be thankful when we sit down to eat. We may be very careful to give thanks when we sit down to eat for the food which is before us. But for one to be thankful in terms of all that he has freely received from the Lord, he should be sincerely expressing his joyful thanksgiving to the Lord at all times. In fact, this is so clearly revealed as God's will that the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything, everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Particularly after a day of prayer and fasting as we had just yesterday, not only must our bodies be thankful that we can now eat, but our hearts should even more so be expressing thankfulness to God at the gracious invitations of mercy that we have received when we know our sin and how it offends a holy God. How we have in the past spurned those invitations of mercy. How we have ignored and neglected the means of grace. Today, we ought to be offering to the Lord our God thanksgiving. Yes, the Lord's hand at such times as days of prayer and fasting is heavy upon us, convincing us of our sin and our desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ. But oh, the brokenness of heart and the gracious invitations of mercy that are ours in Christ. Although a sermon on Thanksgiving, I think, is always appropriate it is especially appropriate today, a day after 
prayer and fasting. I would first draw your attention by way of my first main point to the exposition of the text that is before us. We'll be considering not only the two verses that I read, but verses 11 through 19 as we look at this text. As the Lord and his disciples headed for Jerusalem, they passed through an area lying between Samaria and Galilee. This is indicated in verse 11. And as the Lord entered the outskirts of this small little village, there met him from a distance ten men, but not ten normal men. The bodies of these ten men were plagued with the dreaded disease of leprosy. The disease of leprosy was one which made these men a reproach not only to strangers, but even to their family. To their closest friends, they were a reproach. They could not have communion and fellowship. They were separated. Leprosy had cut them off from the temple. It had cut them off from all the holy things of God, like the sacrifices, the feasts, the ministry. And it had separated them and cut them off from fellowship with God's people. For like sin... Leprosy pictured and symbolized this very fact that we are separated. We are cut off. We are poor, desperate men separated from God by nature. And we need to be cleansed. We need to be healed. And only God, through Jesus Christ, can heal us. Well, these ten lepers were required by the law of God, according to Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, to warn people from a distance that they were lepers by crying out, unclean, unclean. And thus we see these lepers lifting their voices to the Lord from a distance, the text says in verses 12 and 13, from a distance. They were not permitted to come near. Is it not any surprise to us that when these men heard that Jesus, one who had graciously wrought so many miracles throughout Galilee, throughout Judea, that he was passing their way, is it no wonder that they began shouting at the top of their voice, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Even though leprosy usually attacked the throat and the vocal cords, making speech extremely painful. Nevertheless, they were not quietly whispering, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Nor were they calmly requesting, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They are crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Is not the Lord, dear ones, looking for the same desperation and earnest acknowledgement of our need for His mercy in our lives? 
One who is serious about receiving the mercy of God is desperate in his plea, not casual and unaffected when he comes into the presence of God. He doesn't have a not such a big deal attitude. He does not have a business as usual attitude when he approaches God. He is crying out to God in desperation that God would have mercy upon him. Well, upon hearing their earnest plea for mercy and upon seeing them from a distance, the Lord commands them to go immediately and show themselves to the priest, which they quickly set out to do, according to verse 14 of our text. And in fulfillment of the law, again, as we find it in Leviticus 14, most of that chapter, as a matter of fact, tells us how lepers were to to be restored back into the community, back into society, and how they were to approach the priest, and the priest would go through various sacrifices and this type of thing. But the priest was the one to whom they went if they were to be restored to society. And so in fulfillment of this loss, inasmuch as the Lord was still bound by the ceremonial law, The Lord sends the lepers to the priest so that the priest might declare the lepers to be cleansed. Now, this text and others like it have been used to support the idea that that we ought to sit under the ministry of unfaithful ministers, that it's okay to sit under the ministry of unfaithful ministers. For for the most part, the priests were not in any way sympathetic to what Christ was accomplishing. There certainly were those that we find from the gospel accounts that did believe in the Lord. But for the most part, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees And all the ruling body, for the most part, had expressed very clearly their opposition to Jesus Christ. Was the Lord sending these lepers then to sit under the ministry of these priests? To hear the word of God proclaimed by them? Was that the purpose in sending them back? When we consider texts like Matthew chapter 15, for example, it's hard to envision that that was the case. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 12 and following, we find these words, Then came his disciples, that is, the disciples of Christ, and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Direct reference to the religious leaders at that time. Let them alone. That means quite clearly in the, in the original language, separate from them. It's the same word that's used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for divorce. Leave them. Notice what the Lord says about them. They be blind leaders of the blind, 
And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Hardly the type of people that we could envision the Lord sending the lepers to. Furthermore, in Matthew chapter 23, the Lord says this about these religious leaders. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Hardly the kind of leaders, religious leaders, that the Lord would be sending those who were converted to in order to be instructed, in order to hear what God would say to them. Now, these weren't faithful ministers that the Lord was sending these lepers, or unfaithful ministers that he was sending these lepers to, to set under their teaching, to set under their preaching. But rather, there's another reason why he would send them to these priests. Not only to declare that they had been cleansed, not only for the priest to say, you have been cleansed, but also, according to Luke 5.14, to give testimony to them of the truth concerning the Messiah who had healed them. In Luke 5.14, we find here these words, a very similar situation where a leper is healed, and the Lord says, But go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing according as Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. You see, the ordinance was pure, even if it was administered by an unfaithful minister. The ordinance was pure. They could go through with that. But the fact was that they went to bear testimony of the truth. Jesus has healed me. He is who he claimed to be. And so this is not a passage that, that we can go to to support sitting under the ministry, the preaching and teaching and hearing doctrine explained by those who are unfaithful ministers of the Lord. While they are yet on their way to the priest, the scripture says they are healed in verse 14. It is worth noting that the Lord did not heal them while they yet stood before him at a distance. He healed them after they had set out to obey his command. Now what would have happened had they stood there and argued with the Lord But Lord, why should we show ourselves to the priest when we're not yet healed? You think that they would have been healed had they argued with God, the Lord Jesus Christ at that point. What would have happened had they stood there and demanded, Now, Lord, I'm not going to leave here until you heal me. As if they had some kind of claim upon this healing. Now, what do you think would have happened had they said to the Lord, Now, Lord, are you sure you know what you're doing here? 
going to look quite foolish if we appear before the priest and we're not healed. See, they weren't questioning the fact that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, had spoken and they were going to be obedient to that command. They didn't wait to see the effects of the healing before they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They didn't wait to see the consequences, as it were, before they realized what their obligation was, having heard the Lord speak. You see, dear ones, that is how faith responds to the invitations of Christ, to the warnings of Christ, to the promises of Christ, to the commands of Christ and to the doctrine of Christ. That's how faith responds. He doesn't have to wait to see the consequences or the effects because he knows the Lord has spoken. The one who truly believes responds on that basis. Thus saith the Lord, if God says it, I'm going to do it. And the firm assurance of faith, dear ones, is realized in the heart of the Christian, only when he is expressing his faith by such obedience. This is what brings forth assurance in our heart. Not waiting until we see the, the effects, not waiting until we realize the promises, but seeing that at that point that we understand the will of God, we act upon it. And God gives assurance when we have that faith in the Lord. And in his word. As I've noted before in other sermons, greater understanding of God's will comes to us when we are doing all that we presently know is God's will. We can't expect God to give us further light, further insight, if we are not doing what we presently know to be the will of God. They didn't wait. They acted upon the light that they had been given and God healed them as they were proceeding to the priests. Whereas a faithful response to light, dear ones, brings more light, a disregard for light, a disregard for the commandments and the promises and the doctrine of Christ will bring darkness, will bring confusion, and hardness to our hearts. And finally, we come to the main point in the narrative. Ten were healed. I'm sorry. Ten were healed, but one only returns to give thanks to the Lord. Nine did not return. One did, according to Luke 17:15. And he returned and fell down on his face, which was a sign of worship, a sign of deep humiliation, a sign of sincere gratitude. Perhaps by the time the ten lepers were healed, they were a significant distance from the Lord. Perhaps they were out of sight even. And here's precisely where they were tempted to show a thankless heart, out of sight, out of mind. Perhaps they reasoned in this way. 
We've not seen our family for, for many months, perhaps many years. After all, we can return thanks to the Lord tomorrow. We can show our gratitude tomorrow or some other time. And then, forgetfulness for the mercies of God beclouds the heart of man and procrastination sets in. For the nine lepers who kept running, it was just too great a sacrifice, too great of an effort on their part to take the time presently, at that moment, to express their thanks to Christ for his boundless mercy. They had more important things to do. The one who saw that he was healed stopped dead in his tracks and returned to pour out his heart in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And the text says that he was a Samaritan in verse 16. Not exactly the one, at least from a human perspective, that you would expect to return to Christ. You remember that Jesus told the Samaritan woman he met by the well, Ye, that is ye Samaritans, worship ye know not what. We, that is we Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But here the Lord gives to us a beautiful picture that he receives all. He receives all, Jew or Gentile. He receives all who come to him through Jesus Christ. As Peter preached to Cornelius and to his household, Peter said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. The Lord was was demonstrating and indicating through this one Samaritan who returned to give thanks that salvation is not of our works. It is not of physical lineage. It is not of our baptism. It is not of any of the ordinances that we receive in the church. Salvation is of God by His Spirit wrought in the heart of the one who believes. It is of God's grace alone and through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Jesus responds by asking, where the other nine are? And he sends the Samaritan on his way with these words, these reassuring words. Thy faith hath made thee whole, the Lord declared to the Samaritan. Certainly whole as to physical healing, but also, and more importantly, whole as to his spiritual healing. But how, I ask you, how was this faith that made the Samaritan leper whole? How was it evidenced in his life? Why can we be absolutely sure about this man's genuine faith? Whereas we may not have any specific assurance of the genuine faith of the nine who didn't return. What was it that evidenced his faith, his thankfulness? 
The fact that he returned to pour out his heart in thanksgiving to the Lord for the mercy that he had received. My second main point is the doctrine from the text. First of all, the primary object of this true account in the life of Christ is to graphically demonstrate the incredible ingratitude of the Jewish people. They had been the recipients of amazing blessings from God. They had received such tangible expressions of God's mercy to them through the various signs and wonders and invitations to come to Christ. And yet they showed no demonstrable faith expressed by thankfulness. This truth is especially evident in that there were nine Jews, which seems to be the inference inasmuch as the attention is drawn to the one Samaritan, that there were nine Jews who did not return to give thanks. All ten were recipients of Christ's merciful healing here, but only a stranger to the covenant sincerely expressed his faith through heartfelt gratitude. The nine, it would appear, were certainly not rank pagans, for they addressed the Lord as Jesus, Master. Furthermore, when they hear the word of Christ to go and show themselves to the priest, they immediately respond. They are on their way. They are healed in response to that. It certainly appears there was some acknowledgement of Christ by the nine to some degree. We might even say they were professing members of the visible church. But were they genuine believers? Well, the text does not clearly settle that issue for us. However, I would have you remember what the Lord says about many who will call Him Lord, Lord on that day of judgment. In Matthew 7, He will say to them, I know you not. Turn away from me, ye workers of iniquity, though they address Him as Lord. They appear to be members of the church, the visible church. They profess Him to be Lord. And yet he turns them away to eternal damnation. Moreover, the Lord, in the parable of the soils, you remember, pressed the point of initial signs of conversion being in the lives of certain ones. Yes, visible members of the church will give certain signs of life certain indications of faith, professions of faith. And yet they do not all bear fruit. In Matthew chapter 13, the Lord speaks of these four soils. And in the first soil, the seed, which is the word of God, is sown. But it's not understood, and the wicked one comes quickly and snatches it away. 
In the second soil, it is a, the seed is sown on stony places. And it says that concerning this soil, it is received with joy, but yet it quickly perishes because of the heat. It doesn't have any depth. It does not take root in the heart. And then there is a third soil that is sown among thorns. And this one, it says, here's the word. But the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so for various reasons, because of tribulation, because of the cares of this life, because of such a, a earthly focus, for one reason or another, there is not a genuine faith in the Lord, though there appears to be initially. And in each of these cases, there is no fruit that lasts. But there is a fourth soil, the Lord says, that is sown in good ground, and the word is heard, and it's understood, and it bears fruit, albeit varying degrees of fruit, some thirty, some sixty, some a hundredfold. But all bear fruit to the glory of God. The doctrine herein stated is that a conspicuous evidence of saving faith, dear ones, is a heart of joyful thanksgiving for the many mercies bestowed and received. You cannot take God's covenant blessings for granted, dear ones. We cannot say, I'm a covenanter, like the Jews said, I'm a Jew. Therefore, I'm entitled to God's blessings simply because I bear the name or because I have a physical lineage. No, it won't do. We must have faith, and we must express that faith through thankfulness. See, the Lord is, is still, even today, distinguishing the true Jew from the merely professing Jew. To those who truly know the mercy of Christ, every gift of God to them, whether of a material nature, but especially of a spiritual nature. Every gift is as if He had given to them the whole world. And in reality, He has given to us the whole world. For we are joint heirs with Christ, and Christ owns all. And as His people, we own all and reign with Him. second doctrine that I would draw to your attention is this, that the cry of these lepers was not, Jesus, Master, give me what I deserve. But rather their cry was for Christ's mercy, not for His justice. If we would receive the benefits of His salvation, if we would receive even those blessings He has promised to give to those who turn to Him, it is only and always on the basis of God's grace in Christ Jesus. We must always approach God. In one sense, knowing our sin and utter unworthiness to come into His presence, that must always be in our mind as we approach God, our own inherent unworthiness to be there. 
And yet at the same time, we must approach God with confidence, clinging to our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads not our righteousness nor our worthiness, but pleads his own righteousness and his worthiness. And so we have both of these going on as we approach the Lord. Our own unworthiness, but the worthiness of Christ. And enjoying the Lord on that basis. You see, dear ones, our attitude before the Lord must always be, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Only one who knows his own sinfulness and his own unworthiness and knows what he has been saved from can sincerely express the thankfulness of this Samaritan leper. Only as we realize what God has redeemed us from. My last main point is the practical use of this text. First of all, the Samaritan's thanksgiving was not rehearsed, canned, or vain repetition. You know, the phrase, praise the Lord, can become actually profane speech when it's used without a genuine expression of thanks to the Lord. If it simply becomes an expression in our vocabulary, praise the Lord, it can become profanity. We treat it and esteem it lightly. We're not taking care to be thankful. We're simply uttering the words. As is any of our worship to God. The singing of the Psalms can become profane speech if we are not taking care as to how we sing and concentrating on the words which we use with the Lord. And so the Samaritan's thanksgiving was not rehearsed or canned or vain, and neither should our thanksgiving be, dear ones. Our thanksgiving to Christ should be so natural and voluntary that it flows like a mighty river from our souls out of our mouths. A begrudging thanksgiving, the attitude, well, if I have to be thankful, I'll do it. Or if I have to express thanksgiving, I'll do it. But my heart's really not in it. That kind of begrudging thanksgiving is no sincere thanksgiving at all. It actually, dear ones, is a greater aggravation of the sin of not being thankful. It's a sin to be not, not to be thankful. It's a sin not to express our thanks, but to go through the motions of being thankful when our heart is not thankful and to express the words is an aggravation of that sin. And we have to remind our children 25 times a day to express their thanks for favors done for them. Uh, as parents, we do not receive a great deal of satisfaction of knowing that they really meant it. But there comes an enormous amount of satisfaction and joy when our children simply voluntarily look up into your eyes 
as a parent and say, Mom, Dad, thank you. That's what we wait for as parents, for that kind of grace to be sowed in our, the lives of our children where they express it freely and voluntarily. And that's what God waits for in the lives of His children. Not that we be prodded. Not that we be pushed along. But that we freely and voluntarily express that thankfulness. You know, dear ones, there is nothing that will more greatly encourage children, that will encourage parents, that will encourage husbands and wives, that will encourage shepherds and their flocks to diligent service than a sincere word of encouragement or expression of thankfulness for a job well done. Not vain flattery, not deceitful speech, but sincere thanksgiving. It will lighten the load, believe me. It will lighten the load like few things will when one knows that his labors are not in vain, but are sincerely appreciated. The second practical use of our text the Samaritan's thanksgiving was not a silent or hidden thanksgiving, but rather a vocal and expressive giving of thanks. And so should our thanksgiving be. The nine lepers opened their mouths wide to plead for Christ's mercy. But when he healed them, they became strangely speechless. Dear ones, Although our emotions may be used for ungodly purposes, though we can abuse our emotions even in the worship of God, we must never be afraid, however, to express sanctified emotions or religious affections to the Lord or even before the people of God at appropriate times. That shouldn't be a fear of ours. God made us that way. And how many times do we read of the prophets, of the people of God, even of the Lord Jesus Christ, weeping with tears in their eyes? Not for a show, but a genuine expression of thanksgiving to the Lord for His tender mercies to us. Earnest thanksgiving to God and others, dear ones, can no more be buried in the soul than Christ could remain in the grave. Thanksgiving will arise from the heart of true faith. It will arise from our heart even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The third practical use. The Samaritan's thanksgiving, dear ones, was not of a broad, general kind that was directed more shotgun style at life in general. He fell before the feet of Christ and poured out his praise to the Lord 
I've observed, dear ones, a general kind of thankfulness by many unbelievers for blessings received. I've even seen on the part of many unbelievers thankfulness, but it's, again, it's a very broad, general type of thankfulness. Oh, I'm so thankful for the food we can enjoy because so many people in other parts of the world have nothing. Well, what kind of thankfulness is that? Who are you thankful to? That's the question. You know, such thankfulness could be uttered by an atheist if it's not directly, specifically directed to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Learn, dear ones, to be specific in your thanksgiving. Don't be general. Don't just say, thank the Father for all of the material blessings. Don't be general and simply express thanksgiving for all spiritual blessings, but rather be specific about the material blessings and the spiritual blessings which the Lord has given to you. And along with that, learn to itemize in your giving of thanks. Learn to itemize them so that even when you are passing through severe trials and painful afflictions, you never run out of things for which to be thankful. What keeps us on the path of righteousness and truth when everything around us seems to be going wrong? If it's not the fact that we have a thankful heart for all that God has blessed us with, if we are not expressing that thankfulness for what God has given to us, we will be, by the enemy, deterred from the path of righteousness. For you see, dear ones, even in the midst of trials, you can be thankful for the trial which God brings into your life because you know that God is using even that for your good. He does not intend it for your your cursing. He brings it for your good. That's why James says in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when ye fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. How can you have joy? Well, if you don't know that God is working patience in your life, if you don't know and understand what God is up to, how can you have joy? How can you be thankful? You won't be. But if you know that God has a plan and a purpose and He's accomplishing it in your life through this trial, you can be thankful. Because God is stretching us. He's enlarging our faith. And the way that God stretches us and causes us to grow is to move out of that place where we believe we're the most comfortable. Where we think we're especially secure in this life. God moves us out of that place many times to stretch us. And to say, no, your confidence is not in that situation. Your confidence cannot be in that person. Your confidence is in me. And I will use this for your good. And so we can be thankful that God cares enough for us that He moves us out of our comfort zones 
and stretches us the way that He does. In fact, when you suffer for doing what is right, the Scriptures teach you suffer for Christ and you evidence your union with Jesus Christ. When you suffer for what Christ suffered for, you show that you are united to Him. It is a powerful evidence in your life that you belong to Jesus Christ. You can be thankful for that as well. The fourth practical use is this. The thanksgiving of the Samaritan was not laced with pride. It was not laced with bitterness or resentment and neither should ours be. Maybe that seems like a contradiction. Maybe it seems rather obvious. But we can express, even in our thankfulness, if we're not careful, a pride in self-centeredness and bitterness. You see, there was no expression of bitterness or pride to the Lord by this Samaritan by saying, Lord, you sure could have healed me sooner and spared me much pain and anguish, separation from my family and friends and the holy ordinances, but thanks anyway. The one who is genuinely thankful, dear ones, does not forget all the past or even of the present. He doesn't forget it. But he realizes, dear ones, he realizes God's grace is sufficient and that God is always training us in whatever we suffer. Whether it be affliction for our sin or whether it be trial for righteousness. Whatever the cause, if we belong to Him, we can always be assured that He is training us. He is disciplining us. And finally, the last practical use. Never, ever forget, dear ones, that you were once unclean yourselves. You were once spiritual lepers before God. You were once cut off from a living union and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there is no, certainly no need to relive the filth and the corruption of your past life so as to sensationalize your testimony for the applause of men. For example, in some professing Christian circles, those who were rescued from lives of drug addiction or immorality or atheism and profanity of every kind are immediately thrust into positions of leadership because their testimony is so powerful as to what they were saved from. Don't sensationalize it. You can't forget it. But don't relive it. Don't live in the past. You were once a spiritual leper. Praise God, you're not there any longer. But those of us who may not have that same kind of testimony, we were no less spiritual lepers because God rescued us from sin, from corruption as well. If we had committed only one sin in all of our life, it would have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to the cross 
to bear the infinite punishment of God on our behalf. But at the same time, dear ones, as we remember from what we have been saved, as we remember the spiritual healing that has been applied to our soul and that we're no longer lepers, God help us to have the attitude of Paul because so many things in our past life are extremely painful. So many things we regret having done against the Lord himself and against others. And they're painful. But every time the Apostle Paul looked back to the fact that he had persecuted the church and was responsible for putting Christians to death himself, he was reminded of the grace of God, that he was no longer a persecutor of the church any longer because God had shown him mercy. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. And so let even each painful memory of your past turn your attention to the mercy of Christ who has rescued you rather than to a heart of bitterness and resentment. We don't live in the past, but we remember the past so that we never forget the tender mercies of the Lord. Dear ones, let us not be like Eve who believed the lie of Satan that God was unfair to withhold that one tree from her even though he had given her every other tree to eat from. That kind of ingratitude that focuses upon the one thing that we so much want in our life Lord won't give it to us. That kind of ingratitude when God has given us all the other trees to eat of is especially a heart of ingratitude. And that ingratitude, like in the case of Eve, so in our hearts, flows from unbelief. Let's call it what it is. It flows from unbelief. God does not really care for me. When God says he loves me, no, I don't believe it. He will not really provide for me, though God says He will provide for all of our needs. We don't believe it. We choose to want that one thing that He says no about. We disbelieve the promise that's given to us in Romans 8.32, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? all things that we need. We don't believe the promise and therefore we are ungrateful and thankless. You may say, I know that. I know that the Lord has sent His Son. That's the greatest expression of love. I know that promise in Romans 8.32. You see, the, the issue is not that we don't know these things. The issue is we don't believe these things. That's the issue. And so a heart of ingratitude is a heart of unbelief. A heart of thankfulness is a rich heart. A heart 
of ingratitude is a very, very poor heart. I leave you, dear ones, with this passage today. I encourage you to memorize it. I encourage you to teach it to your children and to take it with you every day. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. Giving of thanks. God help us as His people to express to Him our thanksgiving as did that Samaritan leper and to express our appreciation, our encouragement, our thankfulness as well to one another. Please stand with me in prayer. O Lord, our God, Father of mercies, the Father of comfort, Thou who hast especially encouraged us by the grace and mercy which Thou hast shown us in Christ and has given us blessings un, uh, untold, that even our, in our imagination we cannot, we cannot think of all that Thou hast blessed us with. We cannot fathom it. We cannot see it. O oh Lord, we pray that Thou would give to us, first of all, a heart that is broken and contrite for our thanklessness in the past. That we have been very quick to remember how Thou hast not blessed us with many things we have sought in our lives, but, thou, but at the same time, we have been extremely forgetful when it comes to remembering all that Thou hast given to us. Our Father, we pray that Thou would grant to us Thy grace to live a thankful life, even in the midst of our suffering and our heartache, our trials and tribulations, Give to us the grace of thankfulness. Let it be the expression of our faith. We ask our Father that we would not be like the nine, clinging only to a title, a name, clinging to the fact that we are covenanters, but that, Father, that we would see that the covenanted faith of the scriptures expressed through thankfulness. We ask, Lord, that Thou would be with us and help us for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.